Well, as Dominic uh, mentioned this morning, as we prayed for missions and prayed for the ministry of the gospel around the world, uh, formerly uh, myself and several others here in this body were at Countryside Baptist Church in Olathe. And back in 2013, while I was serving as a pastor there, I went to visit a member of the church whose name was Curtis Shoup. And Curtis had a really unique testimony. Um, Decades ago, Curtis had been shot in the face during a bank heist that had gone wrong. He was climbing out of the fire escape onto a roof. Uh, he was a safe cracker, and the guy in front of him opened the, the hatch, and there was a police officer there, and they exchanged gunfire. And uh, the police officer was struck, and so was Curtis. He was hit in the face, so when he smiled, he had a crooked smile. This half of his face didn't really work as well anymore. But during his time in prison, he was serving a life sentence, uh, he had come to faith in Christ. He understood the gospel for the first time and believed and was dramatically converted, and his life changed. Um, through a long story, my point today is not to tell his story, uh, to tell a different story, but he eventually was granted parole, and he had a vibrant prison ministry sharing the gospel with inmates. But Curtis, in 2013, was fighting a losing battle with cancer. And so I went to visit him where he was staying in the nursing home because I wanted to try to encourage him. Uh, he was pretty much at that point bedridden, and he could no longer be involved in the church or the prison ministry that he loved so much. He was sort of stuck there. But as I went to visit Curtis, he was joyful. There was no self-pity. He didn't feel sorry for himself at all. But mingled with his joy and his gratitude to God for saving him was a burden. Curtis had a burden to see the ministry of the gospel continue. And Curtis knew that we were planning to come here and attempt to plant a church. And so when I arrived at the nursing home, he didn't want to talk about cancer. He didn't want to talk about how he was feeling or or what he may, may have been struggling with. He wanted to know about the plans to move to Lawrence. He asked me about our move, and he asked about the new ministry. He asked about what challenges that we expected to face. And Curtis looked me in the eye, and he said, J.D., I pray for you every day. I pray for you in that new church because you have a big challenge ahead of you. And so we prayed together that day in his room. I had gone to the nursing home hoping to encourage Curtis. I thought maybe I could be a blessing to him. But it ended up that I was the one who ended up receiving great encouragement and ministry that day. On April 13th of 2013, Curtis Shoup died. And he entered into the presence of the Christ that he loved and proclaimed. And then fast forward six years. Here we are in late July of 2019. And there's a church now here in Lawrence. And Curtis Shoup has never been here. He's never met most of you. He's never met the people who came to know Christ through this ministry, those of you who've been saved through the preaching and the the body ministry of this church. He's never met the believers who have grown in their faith here and been encouraged here and become more like Christ and become more mature and more grounded. He's never worshipped with us here. He's never heard one of my sermons or Michael's sermons or any of the other sermons here at Redemption Hill. He's never enjoyed the fellowship of this body. He's never come to one of our church picnics or attended one of our small groups. But make no mistake, this church exists in part because of the faithful prayers of Curtis Shoup and many other people like him. I want to ask you a question this morning. If all of your prayers, let's say over the last month, were to be instantly answered, what would be the fruit of your labor, of your prayers? How many people would be saved? How many church leaders would be raised up? How many missionaries would be called and sent to the field? 
How many churches would be planted? How many disciples would be matured in their faith? Our mission as followers of Jesus is to go and make disciples, to preach the gospel and baptize those who believe and teach them to follow Jesus. That is the great commission we've been given. And I believe that prayer is the essential engine for this mission. And so did the Apostle Paul. I want to draw your attention to Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 this morning. Here's our text for today. It is God's word to us, and it says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. God, as we open your word this morning, we want to be teachable. We want to understand what your will is for our life. We pray that you would enable us to respond in faith and obedience to all that you reveal to us through your word. So Lord, open our hearts and do your work through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The main point of our text this morning is this. Prayer is the regular expression of a heart that is dependent on and devoted to Christ. It's a little bit of a complicated sentence. I don't usually make my main point that clunky, so I'll read it again. Prayer is the regular expression of a heart dependent on and devoted to Christ. There's two parts to that. Two parts to that. A heart that's dependent on Christ it means that prayer is a confession of our need and therefore an, an act of trust. When we pray, we're showing we need God and we're trusting him that he will take care of us, that he will meet our needs. So it's a heart that's dependent on Christ that prays. It's the regular expression of dependency on Christ. But it's also the regular expression of devotion to Christ. To pray is to reflect a, com a commitment and a desire for Christ's purposes to be fulfilled, for his pleasure, for his glory. So we pray more about more than just about what we want, what benefits us. We pray according to what will glorify Christ. We pray according to his will, according to the things that he has promised to do. So prayer is the regular expression of a heart dependent on and devoted to Christ. Paul teaches us here about prayer as he begins to wrap up this letter to the Colossians. And we can see here two different exhortations, or two different aspects to to what he's saying here. Number one, we find a general exhortation to prayer in verse two. It's not super specific. It's just a general exhortation here that we ought to pray. And this is where we're getting that idea of a heart that is dependent on Christ. Look at what it says in verse two. He says, continue steadfastly. That's his instruction, his command to us. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Jerry Bridges has written that prayer is the most tangible expression of trust in God. I think he's right. He's right. A prayerless Christian, someone who does not continue steadfastly in prayer, should be an oxymoron. It should be a contradiction in terms. As, as Paul instructs the Colossians to pray, he gives us three descriptions of what faithful personal prayer should look like in your life and my life. First of all, he says that personal prayer is to be continual. Continue steadfastly in prayer. And this implies more than just we pray all the time. I think Paul is getting here at a deeper idea that we are committed to the practice of prayer. There is a devotion to it. 
so that it is both frequent, happening all the time, and fervent, that we're committed to it, devoted to it, we're serious about it, and deeply engaged, not just going through the motions. This is not the only place where we find this familiar biblical instruction to pray. Paul tells the Romans in Romans 12, verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. We are instructed, commanded to pray, and to pray regularly and faithfully. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. It is to be a constant spirit and a frame of mind. Not that we can literally verbally pray and give our full attention to it at every moment of every day, but it shows that we go through life with that constant awareness that we're depending on God so that when we face challenges, our first response is to pray. When we deal with grief and disappointment, our first response is to pray. When we face uncertainty, our first and ongoing and even final response is to pray. We pray without ceasing. Why are we to pray continually? Okay, so the Bible tells us we should, but have you ever thought about that? Why? Why not just pray once a week on Sunday when we gather, and then, you know, that's enough? Why are we to pray continually? Well, I think we can first of all pray continually because if we're honest and we, and we are honest about ourselves, we are a people who are continually in need, aren't we? The moment that you stop needing God's help is the moment you can stop praying, which means we are going to pray continually all the time without ceasing. When we don't pray, it shows we've forgotten who we are, and we've forgotten how needy we are, and it shows we've forgotten how faithful God is to pour out his grace upon us. When we neglect personal prayer, when you and I forget to pray or neglect to pray, it reveals self-reliance instead of trusting Christ. It shows spiritual apathy rather than a heart that is in tune with God and his will, and it reveals a coldness and a forgetfulness. Paul says that we are to continue steadfastly in prayer because we need it. We need God. We need God all the time. But we also pray continually because as we pray, and you know this, if you are a follower of Jesus and you've attempted prayer in your life, you know that often our prayers are not answered right away, are they? Rarely is God's timing perfectly in sync with our timing. And prayer isn't some, some formula we can pray to get God to jump onto our agenda and do what we want, when we want, in the way that we want it. Often we pray, we ask, and then we wait, don't we? We wait. To have faith in Christ and to be submitted to his will means that we pray and we ask him to act, but it also means that we wait. We wait on him. We keep looking to the Lord. We keep praying as we wait. We often pray for the same thing over and over, persisting in prayer. And the scripture commends us, commends this practice to us, urges us to pray again and again and to keep seeking God and bringing our needs before him. In Luke chapter 18, it records for us one of Christ's parables about this persistent widow. She goes to an unrighteous judge with her request, and she literally wears him out. She keeps coming day after day until he gets sick and tired of seeing her and hearing her requests. In verse 4 of Luke 18, it says, For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, here's Jesus' interpretation and application of this story. The Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect 
who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Luke 18, 1, Luke tells us that Jesus told this story so that we would pray and not lose heart, so that we would not quit, so that we would not give up, so that we would persist in praying continually, so that we would grow in the daily practice of this privilege in coming to God with our requests. So personal prayer is to be continual and ongoing, but secondly, personal prayer is to be watchful. It says continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. To be watchful means to be awake, to be alert. So why does Paul need to tell us this, that we should be watchful in prayer? I don't know about you, but I find it very easily to fall asleep. If I stop moving, if I stop working, if I stop talking, my body and my brain shuts down instantly. I've been married for uh, 14 years now, and my wife will tell you, the worst time for us to have good conversation is when the lights go out and my head hits the pillow because I'm gone that fast. It takes me like two seconds. And that's a blessing when I need some rest, but it's a challenge when it comes time to pray. When your mind and your body shuts down, you can't pray. So we do need to be awake. We do need to be alert in a physical sense. But I think Paul means something more here than just staying physically awake while we pray. As necessary as that is. And that is necessary. But there is a spiritual watchfulness, a spiritual alertness that is in view here. I don't know about you. If you ever are involved in hunting or things like that, there are, you know, like a deer, when it smells something or it hears something, you can be half a mile away, but the ears are up. And its eyes are wide open, and it is on high alert, listening, watching for any scent or any sight or any sound that is just a little bit off. That's the sense here that Paul is getting at, that we are watchful and alert in a spiritual sense. In the book of Colossians alone, we know that there's things we are to be watchful for and aware of. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Paul says we should be watchful and alert and aware of the return of Christ. He told us to set our mind on things above, not things on the earth. For we have died and our life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. Jesus is coming back. And Paul says, be aware of that at all times. That should totally control our mindset and shape the way we live in the moment. Paul's told us that we are to be on guard against worldly philosophies and false teaching. Look back in chapter 2, in verse 8. Paul says, see to it. That no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. There are a million ideas and philosophies and agendas that are out there today that minimize Christ, and they will take you captive. We have to be on guard. We have to be alert to these things. And this shapes how we pray. It shapes how we pray. We are also called, in the book of Colossians here, to be engaged in the war against our own sin. In chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You might say, why is this such a big deal? Paul tells us, verse 6, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. We are to take seriously the war against sin in our own life because they're the same kinds of things that earn the wrath of God. And if we have no success in battling against the sin of our life, if we can continue comfortably and consistently in unrepentant sin, then it means that we don't belong to Christ and that wrath is destined to fall upon us. 
This is a serious thing. And Paul says, be watchful in prayer. We're expecting the return of Christ. We're on guard against philosophies of the world. We're at war against the sin that is within us. And all of that comes out in the way we pray. We are to be aware and watchful. These realities call for alertness. I think we can also look at the way Jesus taught his disciples to pray in the Lord's Prayer. He taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. We should be alert and aware of the will of God and praying to that end. He says we should be alert and aware to our needs and the needs of those around us. We pray, give us this day our daily bread. We are alert and aware to what is at stake. He teaches us to pray, lead us not into, t- into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There's a war going on. We have an enemy, and he wants to destroy you. And all of this informs how we pray. So let me ask you, do these realities shape how you pray? Too often our prayers are bored, vague repetitions. We don't ask for anything specific. We're numb to what's going on around us. We're unaware to what is at stake, and our prayers suffer because of it. We must be watchful in prayer. But Paul tells us not only is prayer to be continual and watchful, but third, it's to be thankful. Very simple. We see it right here in the text. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. This is the fifth mention of gratitude in the book of Colossians. And Paul has modeled this for us already. If you go back to chapter 1, Paul, in his prayers, is deeply grateful for how these people have believed in Christ and how the gospel has transformed them and turned them into a people who are growing and who love each other and who are holding on to this hope of Christ and the resurrection and eternal glory with him. So Paul tells us that we as well should be expressing gratitude in our prayers. We could survey the book of Colossians and see a hundred things we should be thankful for. We don't have time to do all that today. You can survey your own life and see all the ways God has met your need and provided and protected and guided you and saved you if you're a believer, if you know Christ, something you don't deserve, something you are powerless to accomplish on your own. There is no shortage of things we can thank God for and praise God for. Are your prayers filled with gratitude? Are you a thankful Christian? We can go back to Luke once again in chapter 17. Jesus sees 10 lepers as he's on his way to Jerusalem. And when he sees them in verse 14, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. There's a healing here, an amazing miracle that would have changed the lives of these men forever. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, you can imagine he's running towards Jerusalem and he looks down at his hand and notices that the flesh is no longer rotting off the bones. And and he, he looks, and he realizes he's healed. And then it says, he turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan, an unlikely worshiper of Christ. Verse 17, Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? May it never be said of us that we are quick to receive God's blessings. The costly grace of Christ. And then find it easy to sort of run our merry little way with barely a thank you. Our prayers are to come before God and make requests, yes. To express our needs, yes. God invites that as a gracious and benevolent father. 
but we must never neglect to give thanks, to remember all that he has done already, all the needs he has already met, the way he has displayed his grace and his love and his mercy and his kindness to us. Paul tells the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So we find here some general instruction regarding personal prayer. It's to be continual, watchful, and thankful. So we live a life that is, is dependent on Christ, praying constantly. But then Paul gets more specific in verses 3 through 4. And he gives not just a general exhortation to pray, but a specific request for prayer. And here we find this idea of a heart that is devoted to Christ in verses 3 and 4. He says, at the same time, as you're continuing in prayer, as you're being watchful, as you're thanking God, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. As we've mentioned already, our prayers are not only to be a personal expression of faith, but they're also to be an expression of our commitment to God's purposes. And his purpose is the advance of the gospel, the saving of sinners, the building of his church. And this is the very thing that Paul had fully devoted his life to. And you can read about this as you read Colossians and Ephesians. And as you read the letters to the Corinthians, Paul is always talking about his calling. What God has tasked him to in taking the good news of the gospel to the Gentiles. And to see people saved and the church established for the glory of his Savior, Jesus Christ. So in Paul's request here, we find a remarkable example of a person who is both fully dependent on and fully devoted to Christ. Paul's not acting like he can get all this stuff done on his own. You know what, Paul? You know, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He had a high education. He was a theological scholar. And you would have thought that maybe Paul would have felt like he could handle himself. But Paul asks here for prayer. He's dependent on Christ. But we also see a man that is fully devoted to Christ. He cares about the mission of Christ. He cares that Christ's purposes be accomplished. Keep in mind here, Paul's writing this letter from prison. If you were writing a letter from prison, what would you be asking prayer for? If you'd been wrongly incarcerated, what would your request be? Pray that I'd get out of here. Pray that I'm not taken to the executioner's block. Pray that I don't have to stay chained up to this guard 24-7 so that I can get cut loose and finally get about being as productive as I think I can be if I wasn't stuck here under arrest. But Paul's requests here have little to do with his comfort or freedom. He cares only for the glory of Christ. I'm sure Paul would have shouted amen to John the Baptist's famous declaration, he must increase, but I must what? Decrease. Paul got it. He got it, and that's what he wanted people to pray for. We can boil his request down to two parts. Verse 3, we see a request for divine opportunity. He says, pray that I would have divine opportunity. He says specifically, pray that God may open to us a door for the word. A door for the word. And he defines what the word is. The word is specifically the mystery of Christ. It's the gospel. The fact that God the Son came to earth, became a man, lived a righteous life, fulfilled the law, died on a cross to pay the debt for sinners, rose again to defeat death in the grave, and now invites all to trust in him and be united to him through faith, 
creating this new body, this new community, this church, that was something that was mind-blowing for people who had a different construct of how salvation worked. People who had a different construct for who belonged and who didn't. Paul's saying, God is saving Jews and Gentiles, and this mystery is profound, and I get to tell people about it. That's what he wants to share with people, to tell them of Christ. Paul knew and Paul believed that the power, the power was in the message. The power was in the word. He doesn't say, pray that a door will be open for me, as true as that would have been, a door open for him to speak. He says, pray that a door will be open for the word, that it would be open for the word. The power is in the message, not the messenger. Paul's already shown his confidence in the gospel in Colossians. In chapter 1, verse 5, he rejoiced because of their hope in heaven that was laid up for them. He says, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Verse 6, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Paul doesn't talk about his success in ministry. Paul doesn't talk about what he's accomplished in the churches he's planted. He talks about the gospel that they believe that is having an ongoing work in them and around the world. He's confident in the message. And he says, pray, pray that the door would be cracked open just wide enough that this gospel could get out because I know it'll change the world. In chapter three, verse 16, he urges the believers there, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all psalms, or in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Paul wants the word to go out and he wants the word to indwell them, to saturate them to fill every part of their life together in the church and their worship. He believed in the power of the word. In Romans 1, chapter 16, Paul had told those believers, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And he tells us why. For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul knew, Paul knew that even though he may be weak, he may be chained up, he may be imprisoned, the truth that he carried with him was powerful. It was explosive, and all he wanted was a chance to turn it loose, to let it do its job. I love what Paul tells Timothy in his letter, 2 Timothy 2.8. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. It is not bound. Paul says, you can chain me up, you can silence me. But the power of the word, the message itself, cannot be contained. And so he asks them to pray. Pray that the door would be open for the gospel to get out. And he asks that they would pray about this, not only because he knew that the power was in the message, it is in the word, but also because he knew that God is the one who opens such doors. If God doesn't open the doors, our efforts, our ministry will bring nothing to fruition. We can't do anything apart from God's work. So he says, pray that God would open this door because we can't. But God can, and he does, and he will. He knew that God would be faithful to create opportunities, that God would be faithful to convict sinners, that God would be faithful to soften hearts, that God would take his word and implant it in the hearts of those whom he had determined to save, that he would draw them to himself. And so naturally, Paul says, hey, let's ask God to do the things that we know he wants to do, that he has planned to do, and that he has equipped us to do through the preaching of the word. Let's ask him to do it. 
You know, too often we fall under the condemnation of what James says, we have not because we ask not. I love how Dominic prayed this morning, specific prayers, that God would open people's eyes and hearts to the gospel, that he would convict them of sin, that he would save people. Ask God to do it. That's how we ought to pray. He gives a specific opportunity here for divine opportunity that the word could get out. But he he has a second part of this request, not just for a divine opportunity, but he also has a request that he would faithfully discharge his duty that he would faithfully discharge his duty, and we ought to pray the same way, that we would be faithful to do what God has asked us to do. He says, verse 4, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So Paul wants them to pray that God would open the door, yes, but he also asks them to pray that he would be faithful to walk through that door. How many of us have gone through life, we've had a door opened for the word, and then we've stood there on the threshold with our hands in our pockets and our mouths closed. Paul says, pray that I would declare it, that I would make it clear in the way that I ought to, that I would deliver the message and do it with clarity. So there's two parts to this. One is the declaration of it, and and that's one hurdle that some of us need to figure out how to get across. That our desire to obey God and our desire to see sinners saved would be greater than our desire to preserve our comfort and avoid an awkward conversation. I joke about this with our small group from time to time, but nobody, literally nobody, has ever died from conversational awkwardness. (laughs) It's true. It's true. But we avoid it as if it's the plague. So we have to get over that, and we have to be able to communicate it. But it matters how we communicate it. It matters how we communicate the gospel. It needs to be done clearly because an unclear gospel is limited in its power. An unclear gospel will not bring about the salvation of sinners. So let me ask you, can you clearly explain the gospel? I won't put you on the spot right now, but all of you who have become members here know that I do put you on the spot when you uh, express your desire to become a member here. I ask you, Put the gospel into your own words. How would you define and explain the gospel? Because there's a question raised, if we don't understand it ourselves and can't articulate it, do we really know it and do we believe it? And have we experienced the transforming power of the gospel if it's this murky, vague, obscure thing? So I've talked to even a couple of you today about membership. I'm going to ask you, how would you define the gospel? So take notes for the next five minutes because then you can (laughs) clep out of that test that's coming later. But we need to be able to clearly explain the gospel. We need to be able to show from Scripture the good news, the mystery of Christ, the message that is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And I'm not just trying to make you feel bad. If you're sitting here saying, I don't know if I could really explain it clearly, I want to help you this morning. Part of what we're doing here is equipping you and teaching you and instructing you. So this is a learning opportunity. If you couldn't stand up right now and give me a 12-second gospel, or give me a two-minute gospel, then then I want to help you with that. How would you define the gospel? Well, we want to define it according to Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you can write that down. This is the definition of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 3. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here's the definition of the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. When people talk about the gospel, 
They must talk about Christ and what he did. The moment we start talking about what we do, how we should live, how we should be changing the world, that's no longer the gospel. That's something else. The gospel is what Jesus does in his death, burial, and resurrection. Historically, that is the gospel. So that's the definition of the gospel. But how do we understand the significance of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection? Well, let me explain the gospel to you. So the gospel defined, 1 Corinthians 13. The gospel explained, we can boil it down. There's different ways you can do that, but I, I like to think of it in terms of four different words. God, man, Christ, and the response. If you've been around for a while, hopefully you've heard that. And if this is repetition, good, because repetition aids learning. But the gospel is, is explained in four parts. God, Man, Christ, and the response. We have to understand, first of all, that God is the sovereign creator and the holy judge. That's where it starts. Psalm 7, verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. He is holy, and his attitude towards sin is one of righteous indignation. Exodus 34, 7 tells us that God is loving and forgiving, which is beautiful and good, but also it says he will by no means clear the guilty. God is a holy judge. And he never sweeps anything under the rug. So we have to start with God. If you don't start explaining the gospel by starting with God, then people won't understand why the other parts matter. So we have to start with God. So understand who God is. And then second of all, understand who we are. What is it about man that we need to explain and understand as we lay out the gospel? We need to know that man is accountable to God and that man is sinful and therefore doomed, destined for judgment. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And verse 23 of chapter 6 tells us that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Hebrews 9.27 tells us that it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Here's the reality. Every person who lives is going to die and is going to stand before this righteous, holy judge. And we're all guilty. We're all guilty. So as we've gone through the first two points, it's actually bad news, isn't it? It's a problem. It's a problem that every person in this world has. That God is a holy judge and we are sinful and destined to stand before this judge when we die. And that brings us to the third point, Christ. Christ. How has God solved this problem? In his grace and his love and his mercy, he has provided the solution to this problem in his son. God took on flesh, and he died for sins. See, that died for sins, we have to understand why that matters. Because death is the punishment for sin. There's a holy, righteous judge, and we are guilty sinners. And so the death of Christ intersects here. I love Galatians 4, verse 4. It says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. He sent him to fix this problem. He sent him because though he is a holy, righteous judge, he is also loving. He so loved the world, John 3 that he gave his only son. Galatians says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to do what? To redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, to, to fix our problem of being guilty and condemned by the law, to ransom us with his blood, to buy us back and to adopt us into his family. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us about this amazing transaction that takes place at the cross. It says, for our sake he, God the Father, made him, speaking of God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As Jesus dies on the cross, Isaiah 53 describes it this way, that all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. Our sins transferred to Christ. And 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that Christ's righteousness is transferred to us. What a beautiful, gracious exchange. Our filthy rags of sin for his righteous robes. That's why the cross matters. Jesus wasn't just a tragic figure who set us a good example. He was someone who died to pay our debt so that our, so that, so that our sins could be atoned for and so that we could be made righteous. And then after dying on the cross for sin, Jesus rose again from the grave and defeated death itself, ascended to the Father, and is now seated in glory. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done, that, that God is a righteous judge. We are sinful people, but Christ came to open the door for salvation, to atone for sins, and to save sinners. So this brings us to the fourth point. So if you've been taking notes, you've written down God, man, Christ, and now the response. Now the response. What is the response that this gospel, this good news, demands? Because everyone who hears this message will respond in either one of two ways. They'll either respond favorably, embracing it, receiving it, or they will reject it. Either, either actively and, and sort of aggressively rejecting it, saying, no, I refuse, I don't believe that, and they will actively walk away. Or there's even sort of a passive rejection, saying, you know, that's great for you. Um, I don't really need that. I don't feel that's that important to me. And it might seem kind of, you know, kind even, but it's still a rejection of Christ. There's two responses. You either accept or you reject. And Scripture defines and describes this, this response of accepting the good news of the gospel as being very simple. It's repentance and faith. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus comes and he's preaching this. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's how we respond to this announcement of the good news that God has made a way through his son for us to be rescued from the wrath that we deserve. Repentance is turning from sin. Acts 3.19 says, Repent therefore and turn back. Turn back that your sins may be blotted out. We turn from sin and we turn to Christ so that he can forgive us of sin. We turn away from sin to Christ. Faith, this repent and believe, faith is relying on what Jesus has accomplished in his death and resurrection. When we share the gospel with people, we must make clear that, that their only hope is to believe fully and only in what Christ has done. That he has the power to save us. And that we must put the full weight of our trust in Christ. Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. There's an idea of repentance there. Turning from being our own Lord and Master and confessing Christ as Lord. And if we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, that's faith, you will be saved. This is the response to the gospel. Ephesians 2, 8 points out to us that this response to the gospel has nothing to do with, with our accomplishments, nothing to do with our performance, nothing to do with how good we can be. It's purely the grace of God and received as a gift. By grace, you have been saved through faith, believing in this gospel. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So God, man, Christ, and the response. We have to share the problem that all people have and the solution that God has provided, the only solution to our problem. And then invite people to respond. Call them to repent of their sin, 
and believe in Jesus Christ. That is the clear gospel. And if you minimize any part of that gospel, if you sugarcoat any part of that gospel because it seems offensive to tell people that they're going to die and stand before a holy judge, that hell is real and eternal, and that Jesus is the only way to salvation, and that they are guilty and condemned, you're going to offend people. But if we minimize this, sugarcoat it, or leave out any one of these important elements, then we're not clearly communicating the gospel. And on the other side, if we add anything to this, if we add in some additional ingredients to the gospel, then we muddy the water, and it's not a clear gospel. Friends, the gospel must be proclaimed with clarity. With clarity. To deliver this message, not any other message, and to deliver it with clarity was the duty that Paul had been tasked to discharge. And he knows that he needs prayer if he's going to get this job done. He needs God's help to faithfully discharge his apostolic duty. And you know what? It's not just Paul who needs God to open doors. You and I need God to open doors as well. And it's not just Paul who needs to be faithful to his calling to proclaim Christ. But we also are called to go and make disciples and to preach the gospel to every nation on earth. So that means that we, today, in our own context here, need to pray for open doors. Open doors with neighbors, with co-workers, with friends, with family. And we need to pray that God would enable us and help us to give us the boldness and the clear mind and the conviction to proclaim this gospel with clarity as we ought to speak. This is what Paul asked them to pray for. And I'm sure that they did. And you know what? As we look back in history, we see that God answered these prayers. In Acts chapter 28, as we come to near the end of that book, in verse 30, it says, Paul, as he's imprisoned here in Rome, it says, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. So Paul couldn't go out and preach to the world, but people were coming to him. And it says that Paul was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And you know what happened as Paul did that? As people came and heard the gospel there from his prison cell? Philippians chapter 4 verse 22 gives us a little insight. As Paul writes to another church, he says, All the saints that are here in Rome greet you, especially those of Caesar's household shows us that the gospel was taking root there in Rome. God did open doors. Paul did faithfully discharge his duty, and people were being saved. The early church scholar and leader, Jerome, wrote this about the apostle Paul. Being by the emperor cast into prison, he became the more known to his family, even the very family of Caesar. And he turned the house of Christ's persecutor into a church. Isn't that awesome to think that, that Caesar, Nero, the one who is actively persecuting the church, that his own family members, his own servants, his trusted advisors, that they're having church in his house because of the influence of the Apostle Paul, because of his bold proclamation of a clear gospel, because of the prayers of the saints in places like Colossae. If Paul needed prayer like that, don't we also? And if God answered those prayers in that time, shouldn't we expect God to answer similar prayers today in our time? We ought to pray for opportunity. 
We ought to pray that we would faithfully fulfill our duty to preach the gospel with clarity and boldness. And we ought to pray expectantly that just as God used those prayers and answered those prayers in the past, that he continues to use prayer as the engine for his great commission of saving sinners and building his church. Although the topic of prayer is one that often brings feelings of guilt and failure, because I think all of us would say, I need to grow in this area. There's really an exciting invitation here to lay hold of a great privilege, to participate in what God is doing in the world through prayer. To come before the creator of the universe, the one who loves us and has saved us, the one who hears us, the one who delights in our prayers, and to touch his power through prayer. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. These prayers are not only the breathing in and the breathing out of the daily Christian life. They are also the engine of the Great Commission. Not just our personal act of dependence on Christ, but also the expression of our devotion to Christ as we pray that these kinds of things would happen. So let's embrace our blood-bought privilege of prayer and come boldly before the throne of grace to seek God's help, not only for our personal trials and struggles, but also for the sake of the mission that he has given us because it won't happen apart from prayer. But as we pray, we can ask and we can expect that Christ's name will be made great throughout the earth as sinners are saved, as saints are encouraged, as churches are planted, as missionaries are sent, as disciples are made, and the building of Christ's church continues all the way until the day of his return. Father in heaven, we come before you humbled and thankful that you would invite us to come and pray to you, to pour out our fears and our needs and our griefs and our sorrows and our joys and our gratitude and our praise and to speak directly to you. We thank you, Jesus, that as our mediator, you stand today holding back the curtain, beckoning us to come in to the very throne room of grace. Lord, help us to take great uh, uh, courage in coming to you because of the cross. And I pray that we would be grateful for this immense privilege. Lord, help us to be continual and watchful and thankful as we pray. And Lord, we ask that you would would focus our hearts and give us a, a holy burden for your will to be accomplished in the earth and that we would pray to this end. Lord, use our prayers to accomplish your purposes. Use our prayers to save sinners and to strengthen your saints. Lord, we confess that we are often distracted in prayer, apathetic. I pray that you'd forgive me for my prayerlessness. It's so hard to preach on a subject like this without feeling like a hypocrite. But God, we are encouraged this morning and excited that we have the the privilege of engaging in this joyful task. So Lord, grow us, grow this church, that we would be a praying church, and that we would pray according to scripture, with eyes wide open to the things that you want to accomplish. So Lord, grow us and use us. And we pray for any who might be among us today, whose prayer needs to be first and foremost one of repentance from sin and faith in Christ. Lord, if there's those among us today who are not saved, who are not yet reconciled to you, who are still dead in their sins and trespasses, I ask you specifically today, 
Open their eyes to the truth. Convict them of sin. Awaken them. Send your spirit to make them alive. To bring them to yourself. To regenerate them and make them new. So that they might become a growing, praying, faithful servant of yours. Part of your family. Adopted and welcomed into your kingdom. We pray this, Lord, in confidence. Knowing that you use the preaching of your word. And you use the prayers of your saints. These are your appointed means. Help us to be confident and faithful as we engage in them. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.